Today's episode is brought to you by Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health conscious people. So if you're a runner, a cyclist, a strength trainer, or an OCR athlete, like you probably are since you're listening to this podcast, and you don't have life insurance, I would hit up Health IQ because they offer discounts for being healthy. What you need to do is you need to head over to their website, healthiq.com SASP for our Strength and Speed podcast. Once you get over to their website, you're going to have to take a health IQ quiz, and that's going to see if you qualify for lower rates on your life insurance. Plus, you can get additional savings by submitting actual data, so things like race results, Strava, RunKeeper, or any other application that you use to actually track your fitness. 56% of health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance. So if you're with another life insurance agency and you're not taking advantage of all the fitness work you're putting in on your spare time, then you need to switch companies right now. Car insurance companies give you lower rates for being a good driver. There's no reason that health insurance companies shouldn't give you a lower rate for being a healthier person by doing things like training, running, lifting weights, and participating in our favorite sport, OCR. You don't have to be an elite athlete to qualify. You just have to be the type of person who's putting in a little bit of time and effort to make yourself healthier. And if you're listening to this podcast, chances are that's you. So head on over to healthiq.com SASP and see if you qualify for lower rates today. Welcome back to the Strength and Speed Podcast. I'm your host, Conco Gauntlet Pro Evan Preparis. Brenna will not be joining me this evening. She's busy as usual working her job. Actually, that's not that's not correct. She just finished racing Savage uh, Georgia today. So uh, by the time you guys hear this, that'll be a couple weeks old. But I'm sitting here getting ready to record a podcast. I got my new Mudgear shirt on. Uh, everyone knows about Mudgear socks and how great they are. They're synthetic socks used for obstacle course racing, built for the trail, built for outside. But if you haven't tried on their shirts, I highly recommend it. I got the big, big Mud Run Guide logo on my shirt right now. It fits really well. I like tight-fitting shirts. That's me. Um, but, yeah, definitely check out their shirts if you haven't, uh, besides their socks. So joining me on today's podcast, I have Dan Kosick. Dan is, was a member of the U.S. Adaptive Ski Team from 1997 to 2002. He competed in two Paralympics, Nagano, Japan in 1998 and Salt Lake City in 2002. He's a new master's athlete, a school social worker, lacrosse and swimming coach. He's got two daughters, aged 11 and 13. He recently, I guess it was not so recently, it was a couple months ago, ran 50 miles at World's Toughest Mudder, beating two-thirds of the field. And he's also a member of Noob Sanity, and I've had Jared Newby on this podcast before. So, uh, Dan, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Cool. Those who maybe read some of my stuff that I publish on Mud Run Guide or read some of the stuff I publish on Strength and Speed. No, I'm not a big interest in human interest stories. I think and and there's a reason for that. It's because there are real athletes who have very interesting stories and I think you fall into that field perfectly, you know. Um, everyone's goal, I don't know, say everyone. A lot of people's goal going into World's Toughest Mudder is to get 50 miles and you manage to do it even though you're missing a leg, right? <laughs> Correct. It is uh I, I'm I'm honored that you think of me in that way, and that's sort of 
uh, a goal that I sort of have is to be recognized as an athlete first, then uh, a person with a disability. Cool. So um, let's start off the podcast with the question. Uh, it's a two-part question. One, how did you lose your leg? And two, did I just put my foot into my mouth by asking an, an awful question to start things off? <laughs> no, you did not ask an awful question. Um, actually, I don't mind coming out and starting with that first because I feel like it just clears the air. Uh, I, I was 15 years old, and I was involved in a, a lot of sports. I was growing through going through my growth spurts and stuff, and I was dealing with some intense pain in my ankle. And after a few MRIs and some biopsies, they discovered a cancerous tumor in my right leg, and it was going up my leg and down into my foot. And the best thing to do was to have my leg amputated from above the knee and go through about six months of precautionary chemotherapy. Um, it was tough as a 15-year-old, but uh, it's tough in a different way as a kid than you are as an adult because as a kid you're worried about, like, girlfriends and are you going to drive and all that kind of stuff. You don't really think about the life-death thing of it. Um, but the chemo was the, the ass-kicker, I think it was. Uh, I went from about 150-pound average-looking 10th grade student to about 95 pounds in a few weeks. Um, couldn't go up a flight of stairs, but I knew I wanted to get back into sports, uh, especially lacrosse and uh, swimming. And that's where it started as a disabled athlete. That's crazy. That's a crazy story. So, so you, you were doing uh, lacrosse and swimming beforehand? Before? Yep. I uh, I played football in the in the fall, and I swam in the winter, and I was playing lacrosse in the spring, and um, that was sort of you know, what I was doing, I wasn't like an exceptional athlete. I was pretty much just an average kid, average athlete, I guess you would say out there on the field. Um, but I had skied, uh, prior to losing my leg, but skiing is an expensive sport. No one in my family skis. Uh, so I wasn't really heavily involved in skiing until after I lost my leg. Gotcha. And then how long, you said there was like, you know, obviously long recovery process, both from the chemo and from the surgery, but when did you start exercising again afterwards? Um, well, it was uh, the six months of on chemo was pretty much doing nothing and uh, living in and out of the hospital. Um, I mean, my dad would have to give me piggyback rides up and down the stairs just to get to bed and stuff at night. And then uh, as soon as I finished chemo, it was like I couldn't wait to start eating full meals again and getting back to normal. Um, I don't know how long exactly, but within a few months. I mean, I was a teen, so it wasn't like I knew exactly what I had to do as a to train and get ready to be an athlete again. I just knew I wanted to be active again. Um, I went to my swim coach, and I wasn't actually wanting to compete anymore because I was sort of self-conscious with my new image, um, especially having to put a Speedo on with one leg. So I went to my swim coach, and I was like, listen, uh, I, I want to get back into shape, but don't count on me swimming with the swim team. We had a pretty small swim team, and I was like, I feel comfortable around you guys, so if you don't mind, I just want to practice with you guys. Um, and I didn't want to be like seen as this gimp in the water. I, you know, where everyone was like, is he going to make it? Is he going to drown? So I, uh, jumped in and basically gave it all I had every single day and tried harder than I ever or tried at anything. And, um, my times actually got faster with one leg than with two legs. Cause I just had a different set of motivation, I think, uh, going into things. And eventually my coach was like, dude, our team is small. You, we, we could we could use you we could have like two relay teams and stuff you know and um somehow he convinced me which was probably one of the hardest things i ever had to do is hop out there on a in a pool like for a swim meet in front of all the parents and opposing teams and stuff with my leg just sort of hanging out there or my leftover leg whatever you want to call it 
Um, and it was the most awkward thing was the girls would do the backup timing for us. And so I'd have like these girl swimmers that were very in shape, you know, standing right there with, you know, me, nothing to hide. And it was, uh, it, it took a lot to get over that, but it was like probably one of the best things for me. Cause it just sort of made everyone accept me for who I was. And it got me to be comfortable with who I was pretty quickly. Um, and that just started, you know, the steamroll into bigger and better things. And then lacrosse started. Um, my first season back in lacrosse, I, uh, I wasn't very good. I was a goalie before I lost my leg and I knew that that was probably the only position I could go back to. I wasn't very fast when I had two legs and I definitely need to get faster after I lost the leg. So, um, going back to being a goalie, I mean, there was times where I would just fall in the crease and the ball would roll right past me and it was embarrassing, but I knew I wasn't going to let that stop me. So I just kept on trying. So that first year was pretty much an experimental year of trying to figure things out. But by my senior year, um, I had things figured out, and uh, I was st- our starting varsity goalie, and we were 18-2, and two, ranked in our state. Um, and that's also the year I started to fall in love with ski racing because I had my driver's license, and I found out that there's a lot of discounted skiing stuff out there for disabled athletes. I could write ski companies because I only skied on one ski. I can get one ski. I can get one boot. And uh, it just made it affordable and accessible. And next thing you know, I was traveling around the country, and then it led to making the team and traveling the world for six, seven years. That's awesome. Thanks. So you you ski – so you just – it's just one foot on the thing and you're just balancing? Yes. Yeah. So being an above-knee amputee, um, dynamically, I cannot generate the same kind of movements and forces I need uh, without having my knee. So it's just – I can actually be – a much more aggressive and faster skier without uh, without my leg on. If I'm teaching my kids how to ski or I'm out there with a with a new person trying to learn how to ski, I'm going to put my leg on and, you know, ski around with it on so I can walk. Um, but if I want to go and have a good time and do, give it my all, um, I'm definitely going to ski on one ski. And I usually have my outriggers, which are people say they're, pole, they're ski poles with skis on the end. They're sort of like a forearm crutch with a little ski on the t- on the end. And basically it allows me to put that down on the ground for a little bit longer period of time than if I was going to make a pole plant because a pole plant would jerk me and then probably make me lose my balance. But that would allow me to put it down for like, say, two seconds instead of a half a second um, so I could like, you know, keep my angles and whatever I needed while I was racing. Cool. All right, I want to get into your ski training in a minute, but first, let's jump back a little bit. So what, what was the biggest challenge you had to overcome at first? Um, I know you, you mentioned some of the mental stuff already, but like, you know, learning to walk or run type stuff, like physical challenges. Yeah, well, I mean, it, learning, I mean, I walked with a cane for a while, I, you know, just to develop certain muscles that I didn't have because I was pretty much inactive for so long um and then you know having a prosthetic leg on uh all the time you you're relying on a perfect fit for it to work well and if you're hot and sweaty if you're losing weight gaining weight whatever it is then that fit starts to go away and then everything else starts to fall apart and you just don't walk well or you don't run well um and there's just a whole different i mean i think studies show that an amputee, an above-knee amputee like myself, uses up to 70% more energy than an able-bodied athlete uh, when we're doing, like, say, the exact same activity. Um, so I'm going to break a sweat a lot quicker. You know, I'm going to get to, um, you know, working hard pretty quick um, just to keep up with most people 
So it was getting used to that. And and it's I think the biggest thing is getting comfortable with being uncomfortable because it's really like I have a stick up my ass all the time, and you're just not used to that, and that's something you got to get used to. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Incredible. Um, okay, so let's jump into your training for when you were on the adaptive ski team. Um, kind of. So, what did the what did the training look like both during the winter, and then also during the off season? So during the summer. Um. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the winter part was on the hill um, all the time, and then we would do some weightlifting and stuff off the hill. If we were traveling, we always got an extra, usually hotel room with the team, and we would move everything as far as we could in the in the corners of the room, and then use the center of the room with stability balls and medicine balls for a lot of things. And I feel like it was a little bit ahead of time um, before other people started using stability balls and medicine balls for training techniques, but that really developed the core, which you really need for being a good ski racer because whatever happens at your feet on the mountain while you're skiing, you really don't want that to go through your body and up to your head. You want that to be sort of absorbed and gone by the time it gets to your waist so that you can stay solid with your arms and your shoulders going down the hill the way you want to. Um, but then in the off season, um, I, you know, I got into a little bit of running, but I'll be honest. Um, I'm an OCR athlete now, but I absolutely hate running. It kicks my ass. And I think that's why I love it so much because it is like the hardest thing I ever do, I could do. Um, so I was trying to do some running to stay in shape, but most of the time I was doing a lot of mountain biking, uh, that I had, and I did a lot of road biking also and swimming in the off season in addition to some strength training. But, um, you know, it was just always doing something and just trying to stay on top of my game because I knew everybody else out there was working just as hard, if not harder than me, um, at my level that I was at at that point. Gotcha. So you talked about how much harder you're working. Do you ever use heart rate training? And if so, is that like, do you have to adjust it because you're working harder? Um, that's funny. Uh, a long time ago, when uh, one of the last years I was on the team, we started to do some heart rate training, and I started to get into it, and I never really went through with it, and I, I haven't, um, I, and I don't now. Um, I always wonder what I, sh you know, if I should be paying attention more. I know I get my heart rate up quick, and I know that um, I, I, my control, controlling my breathing is a difficult thing. But it's it's weird. I feel like when I'm running and I start a race or an event, the people around me think I'm going to die within, like, the first half mile because, like, I'm breathing heavy. I, I'm looking rough. But for somehow, some way, I've always figured out a way that I start to control things um, within that next, you know, say the first mile to two miles. And then I started to find my pace and where I got to be in my zone. And I feel like uh, if I was paying attention to a lot of other things heart rate monitors and stuff. I don't know if I would be able to maintain my focus like I, I do now, but that's where I'm at. So I'm pretty ignorant, I guess you'd say, when it comes to heart rate training. Okay. Yeah, I'd be, I should look that up. I'm curious to see what the adjustment would be, you know, for amputees. Yeah. Um, that'd be interesting. All right. So let's, one of the things we like to do on the podcast is try to pull lessons learned from other sports. So, you know, I firmly believe that most of the, so OCR is a new sport, but the problems we're facing have already been solved by other sports because fitness is old and it's been around forever. So mm -hmm. are there any lessons you think we can pull from skiing and apply them to OCR? Um, well, yeah. I mean, skiing's all about 
adapting to the terrain. And, I mean, when you're skiing in low light, flat light, you have no idea what you, what's going on underneath your foot or your feet if you're a ten-toed freak. Um, and so you got to be ready for everything. And so if you're out there on the trails or you're in some mud or some thick stuff, I mean, that messes with your whole body. And if you don't know how to control that and absorb that, then it's going to exhaust you and beat you up. So, I, you know, I think ski racing, there's a lot there. I mean, I, core strength is great for every sport, um, but it's it's definitely huge in ski racing and obviously helps out a lot in OCR. That gotcha. helps answer your question. <laughs> no, that was good. Absolutely. Um, so how did you end up getting into OCR? Like, what was your first OCR? What year? <laughs> Well, I had a friend that did one of the first Tough Mudders, and he knew what kind of person I was, and he said, you need to do this. And I said, there's just absolutely no way. I can't destroy a prosthetic leg, which costs tens of thousands of dollars just to have fun on one afternoon. Um, But he kept on being persistent and asking me to try to do one. And eventually, I went to my prosthetist, um, and that's the guy who makes my leg. He doesn't do, you know, work the streets. Uh, um, but anyways, I've, I've he, actually uh, never heard that uh, that job title before. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everyone you. looks at me a little weird when I say my prosthetist, but um, yeah. So he's a guy who makes my legs. Uh, it's a step ahead prosthetics and orthotics, and they, you know, they're about four hours from where I live, but they're worth the drive because um, he's he's been a huge support of mine and. I went to him and I basically said, I really want to try this. And he said, well, we can throw some stuff together. I'm not going to, you know, make anything crazy for you because you've never done this before. And I just, you know, don't want to put a ton of time and money into this. And then you just not even complete it or like it or whatever. So he put something together for me and I went out and I couldn't even run one lap around a high school track. And I just was like, okay, well, Next time, I hope I can get a full lap, and then I would walk and run and whatever and eventually build up to a mile and two mile, three mile, to the point where I felt like I had enough endurance. And in the meantime, I was also building my strength with a lot of push-ups and pull-ups and those kinds of activities. And uh, I eventually, you know, it really was like over a year's time of sort of trying to figure out how I'm going to do this and getting out there in the trails. And I eventually went back to my friend and said, you know what, I think I'm ready to try it. So then in 2013, um, I actually went to St. Louis and did my first Tough Mudder, and I did it with a group of friends and uh, my brother, and I had a great time, and I said, I'm going to do another one of these next year. And I said, okay, so I did another one the next year, and then I was like, I'm going to do it again next year, and I went the next year, and then I ran into the group that trains at Noob Sanity, which is about 10 miles from my house, and they just opened the doors for me for like everything. They were like, there's more out there than just tough mutter. And the training was like every week and I couldn't get enough of it. So that was about two and a half years ago or so. And since then I've just continued to do more and more. That's awesome. And you have, you have a great group there at noob sanity. Like I said, we've talked to Jared before. Uh, I went out to noob sanity at OCR America and it was just, the atmosphere there was just so good. So if anyone's in the New York area or wants to take a trip to a permanent obstacle course facility or a training ground, uh, Binghamton, New York, Noob Sanity, they're, they're awesome. they got a lot, lot of events planned. Yes. And I got, a, I got a Mud Run Guide article coming out in the next uh, couple weeks. 
highlighting some of the events you guys do. So Yeah, the Mud Gauntlet is actually the 21st of May, so that'll be our first big event there at Noob Sanity, which is an awesome, basically 5K course, but you got 20-plus obstacles. I'm talking legit stuff that you'd find in any big-name obstacle event. Um, and they maintain it and, and know what they're doing. Uh, Jarrett and his dad, Jerry, I mean, Jerry's an engineer, construction guy by trade, so he knows what he's doing, knows what he's building. And Jarrett is just an awesome athlete that knows how to help people get through these things and learn it. So we have people from all abilities there uh, showing up, and it's just a great, like you said, a great atmosphere because it doesn't feel like you have to be at a certain level to be there and everyone's just so friendly and next thing you know you got like best friends and you're hanging out and you're doing things besides just OCR. Yeah, no, you you guys are absolutely great and that's I really I really loved hanging out with you guys. It was it was so much fun. And on top of that, you know, the course is in Jarrett's backyard and when I first heard that I was like, "Oh geez, what kind of like <laughs> rinky-dink obstacles are we going to have back here?" And like it is, it is enormous. It's impressive, you know, full scale warped wall, like which I think is bigger than Everest. Yeah. Um, the Tough Mudder's it's Everest. Eighteen feet, I think. Eight, yeah, eighteen something feet. Yeah, it's yeah. huge. Um, and then he's got a rig and a. You know, I really like one that's a balance beam over water that goes into a traverse wall over water. I like that one. And, and since you've been there, they've done more. It's every year they add at least one significantly like complex obstacle and then just modify things to make it more, you know, better for everyone else. Cause they know, cause everyone there goes to, you know, Savage goes to Spartan, goes to Tough Mudder. And so they're coming back and they're saying, we got to put something in here that's like this. And, and they listen and they do it, you know? So it is pretty cool. That's awesome. So what are some of the things that people don't really think about some of the unexpected challenges that you face as an adaptive athlete? out on the course um it, it is it's it's just the leg i mean i mean it's the obvious i i have a piece of equipment that i have not a whole lot of control over um a, a stupid bolt that breaks or a hydraulic unit that blows or something will just ruin everything like it'll take me out and i can't do anything about it and i can feel 100 percent still um so having access to a few tools that might be handy um a few parts that might be handy is great uh so at an event like worlds where you can't have any assistance on the course or anything like that you know i i carry a couple things in a little pouch in my back uh just in case something goes wrong on the course because i have had things happen and it you know the year before the first attempt at worlds i had one lap i think i was a half mile or two miles the large uh cargo net whatever they call the a-frame thing um, I fell down the back part of it a little bit and my prosthetic got caught in it and my foot twisted around and it wouldn't like it was doing 360s. So from that point on, I basically limped, you know, to complete that lap and that lap alone took me probably three hours just to get through it. And then I got it tightened up when I got back in the pit and I was like, that's not happening again. So I got an Allen wrench. I got a adjustable wrench in my backpack. Those are the few things I carry. Um, the mud and the water in my socket, which is the part that goes, you know, basically touches my skin. Um, you get stuff in there. I mean, after a few laps or five, 10 miles, no matter what you're doing, it's just not feeling great. And it's sort of sloppy feeling. Um, so it, you know, a blister on my able-bodied foot, I don't even notice it because I'm usually distracted by all the crap going on on my prosthetic side. So I'm sort of 
I guess I might have an advantage because, like, I don't even think about a lot of the able-bodied stuff going on in my body um, because I'm always worried about that kind of stuff. So I got a little bit of a, I guess, an advantage of a distraction from the and my prosthetic. Yeah, it's like that joke goes when when someone's foot or something's hurting, and they're like, "Well, let me see your hand," and then they break your finger. Yeah, you know that joke, and then and then it's like, "Well, now your foot doesn't hurt as bad." Yeah, because yeah, you always worry about whatever is the most painful thing on your body at the time, and everything else is kind of, you know, a problem for later. So. Yep. Yeah. So you, do you actually bring an extra leg or anything when you go to Worlds? Um, do you have one? Do you have an extra leg? My first attempt at Worlds, I that was the obviously my first significant um, long endurance event, and I my prosthetic company uh, did. They they put together basically a whole nother leg from the knee down because that's where pretty much 90% of the problems are going to happen if something happens. Um, and obviously when you have that, usually you never need it, which was exactly what happened. I didn't need it, which was great. Um, and then last year doing uh, two toughest events in Worlds, I had that with me at all times. And I never needed it either. Um, but the great thing now that because I have basically two OCR legs um, from the knee down, because they get such a beating out there, um, every few weeks I ship my legs overnight back to my prosthetist. Uh, and then they'll work on it. And while they're working on it and getting it back to me, I have the other one to use so I can just sort of keep the rotation going um, and never have to stop my training. But prior to having those two, it was like if things were messed up, it, I'd be out without a leg for a week or two. And so my training went back to the gym and just sort of whatever I could do on an assault bike or something like that because I just didn't have anything to get out there in the woods with. Gotcha. Do you have to pay for every time they adjust it or does insurance or something cover that? Um, insurance does not cover anything that is not medically necessi uh, a necessity. Um, it's hard enough to get my regular legs covered by insurance. Uh, no, a step ahead prosthetics and orthotics have just been a huge, like I couldn't do a thing without them. Uh, people think like, oh man, you got a sponsor that's covering 500, a thousand dollars, a couple thousand dollars or whatever it may be. And you're like, wow, that's a great sponsor. But to have a company that basically is building and repairing twenty, thirty thousand dollar legs, because that's what they are, um, at minimum like thirty thousand dollars for a complete leg like that, um, for me to just trash on a regular basis is just huge. And I, I feel so fortunate because I couldn't do a single event if they did that because there's no way I could sacrifice. You know, I'm not going to like sell my house just so I could have a leg and go run an OCR. Um, event or you know for a year or whatever uh, so without that support I couldn't do it so they, they're the ones that pretty much hooked me up um, they also work with Amy Palmero Winters who's uh, also well known below the knee amputee female who just actually attempted Barclays Marathon um, and has been out there um, kicking ass in a lot of events and OCR events yeah I think she finished top 10 at World's Toughest in 2014 I need to double check that but yeah, like she it, which is insane. Yep. Like, yes, she beat she's... a field of several hundred able-bodied women and came in 10th. Yeah, she's on the United States, I don't know the exact team. Um, it's like ultra-marathon. It's like the United States ultra-marathon team, like the able-bodied team. Uh, she's, she, yeah, she's crazy. She, and, she's, and she's a mother of, I think, two kids in mid to, like, least mid-40s. Um, and she's still going out there just, it, it's, she doesn't 
talk much about what she does. I have no idea. Like, I see her, and I talk, and I say hi to her when I'm down there getting some leg stuff done. And I'll be like, what's your next event? She's like, I don't know. You know, I'm like, and then all of a sudden she'll be like, oh, I just found this. And so this weekend I'm going to go here and, you know, go do 120 miles in this event or something like that. Um, I don't know. It's it's so impressive. Uh, my my only my only thing is, like, it, we are two different athletes when it comes to our disabilities, though. Um, having one leg below the knee is totally different than having one leg above the knee. Any joint that you can keep is going to be a huge advantage, but still that have no foot and have her prosthetic leg um, and be able to do what she does is just crazy. Yeah. she. I believe she's also from Long Island, New York, right? Yeah. Yep, yep. She works actually for a step ahead um, out of, you know, out of that office. Yeah. Yeah. Um, boom. Are you from New York originally? Yep. Born and raised in the Binghamton area. I'm a townie. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm I from mean, New York. Too. I'm from New York too. I'm from the island, Long Island. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, while we were talking, I pulled up the 2014 World's Toughest Motor results. I'm going to read you some of the some of the names that are on the top ten: Amelia Boone, Allison Ty, um, several people I don't recognize off the top of my head: Amy Pajic, Morgan McKay, and then tenth, Amy Palmero Winters. Right. So yep. top ten female, which is insane. Yep. Um, so very impressive. So what's the difference between your regular leg, like your day-to-day leg, and your OCR leg? And is there a difference also between the OCR leg and a running leg, like a regular track road run leg? Um, yeah, well, between my regular everyday leg and my OCR leg, like night and day. Uh, besides the socket fit, I guess, is pretty similar. Um, we can go from the foot up, I guess. You know, I have a... a a carbon foot that goes into like a, a foot mold that looks like you know this fake foot um you know you could paint the toenails on it my kids would every once in a while um you know and it goes into a normal shoe and when i wear my everyday leg um i'm wearing two shoes you know people are like oh you must save money on shoes and i'm like no i still wear two shoes all the time um so anyways <laughs> literally I, a know, homeless guy walking around with one shoe on yeah, yeah i don't like yeah i don't know people sometimes just assume because i have one leg i only need one shoe but um but i do for ocr i only do need one shoe because um when you compare the feet i have like a seafoot, um, a blade, you know, you hear all these terms that are out there for them. It depends on what brand you're working with on what they actually call it, but it's sort of like that question mark slash C-looking type carbon um, foot, and it's bent like that because typically you only run more on the ball and toes of your feet, and that's why you don't have it, and um, it's it sort of uh, compresses and sort of saves the energy and then gives it back to you when you come to take your weight off it. Um, it's not an advantage. Like I can't go jump over a building or anything like that. It just gives me a little bit of my energy back when I put my weight into it. Um, yeah, just like your muscles and tendons would normally. Obviously different because you're not actually controlling that contraction, but there's yeah, there's, there's some. Ret- it's not it's not a zero return. There's a little bit of return, but yeah, still obviously a lot harder than running with an, a leg. Yeah, it just it, it just gives me a little bit of it back, um, just enough to basically drive my prosthetic leg through the gate. Uh, the knee on my on my everyday leg has a microprocessor in it. It's got a sort of a memory to it, and it's programmed to um, give me resistance based on sort of my strength and how I walk and all that kind of stuff. So it tries to make my gait look natural. I have to plug it in every single night to charge. 
Um, and it's got obviously a little bit of weight to it, and it's not really durable to the point where I could go submerge it in mud and all that kind of stuff. Um, my OCR leg is actually fairly simple. It's got a hydraulic unit in it that um, has a dial that will control the resistance and flexion on it. Um, it's got you know several bearings to help it you know hopefully swing smoothly. Uh, it's fairly open, so hopefully the mud and water gets through it and doesn't get caught up in it too much. Um, but it, those bearings, you know, get trashed within every couple of OCR events if I'm in some thick stuff or some really dirty water. Um, no matter how waterproof they say they are or I try to make them, they just get pretty much trashed. And then from that point up um, to through my thigh and, and my hip is where the socket is. And there's an inner part, and it's basically held on by suction. So, like, when I talk to little kids, I'll be like, you know, if you ever sucked on a Coke bottle and your tongue gets sucked in there, stuck in there, you know, that's sort of how my leg is on. And um, if air gets in there, my leg's going to fall right off. And I have been places where air gets in, and holy crap, my leg's going to fall off. Um, so in an OCR event, I have a, a thin belt that I wear just for that purpose because air, water, all that stuff gets in there, and the suction's just not going to stay, so that belt keeps it as tight as possible. But on my everyday leg, I don't wear a belt because it's uncomfortable, and it also tugs on my hip, opposite hip, and it causes a lot of back pain and stuff like that. So that's just part of the trade, I guess, is having a little bit more issues with the back and everything because of my gait and the belt and all that. So you've completed a – you've done two World's Toughest Motors. Is that correct? Yeah. My first one, I did it with Team Rubicon as a group, and we sort of – it was like unofficial relay um, that first year when they didn't really have relays going. Um, and we were going on off. Like just four of us would be on the course and four would go and then vice versa. Um, I – a lot of the group actually – there's some injuries and some fatigue dropped out sort of around midnight ish. And then I was actually able to go nonstop from almost midnight on. Um, I got 35 miles in, but I had to sit every other loop for the first half of the event. Um, but I felt great. You know, I mean, I felt beat up at the end, but I was, I finished that event and I said, um, next year I'm coming back. But I said, next year I got to do it by myself because, uh, I just got to see what I can do as an individual. So. Yeah, which which was awesome. I remember seeing you. I believe it was at uh, Arctic Enema. It's probably I think it was your last lap or second to last lap. Second to last, and that was my uh, only second visit to Arctic Enema because that means you had to fail uh, Funky, Funky Monkey. Monkey, and I only failed. Mo- I, I only had, I was so pumped because I only had three obstacle fails for the entire event, and it was twice on Funky Monkey and once on Kong Revolution, and I yeah. You know, as much as you're like, oh, yeah, it was great seeing them. I'm like, no, it wasn't because I failed a freaking <laughs> obstacle. That's why you saw me. Um, yeah. So well, we, no... fell, we felt it too, so I was in the same boat at that point. So um, yeah. no worries. But I was – I remember seeing you there, and I, now that you say that, I remember you telling me that it, that was your uh, second time – only second time failing Punky Monkey through the entire event, which is also impressive. And I was just floored. You're like, yeah, I'm going to get my brown bib. And I was like, what? That is insane. So I was super excited to see you. Thanks. Very motiv- very motivating to me. And, like, I love that about World's Toughest. You know, you feed off each other's energy. So anytime I see someone I know on the course or someone says my name or says hi, you know, I feed off that energy, and that pushes me a little bit harder. So it was absolutely uh, great seeing you over there at uh, Arctic Enema, even though. <laughs> yeah. No, Unfortunate no. <laughs> circumstances. Yeah. Yep. And, you're, and what you just said is, like, 
if there truly wasn't an advantage to being an adaptive athlete out there, you just you just mentioned it. It was I you know I you get bombarded with you're an inspiration. You get bombarded with you know that's so crazy. You're awesome, whatever. And and you know and it feels nice, but it's weird. It's uncomfortable. Um, but after a while, you get used to it. But there's like you get that energy a lot because a lot of people see you and they're like, Oh man, you know, and they, and you see them get the energy and you feed off that. Um, and I get it more than I think the everyday athlete out there or the, the average athlete out there. Um, so I, I'm constantly getting that energy from others. I feel like, um, and that, you know, knowing that I'm an inspiration to others is, is really motivating to me. So I'm always, if I'm out there, I'm going to be doing my hardest, you know, because I feel like everyone notices me because I don't want to look like I'm, you know, copping out or wimping out when I know people see me because I got one leg, you know, so. So speaking of World Toughest Mudder, let's go over some of the obstacles and if there's anything that's kind of crazy or unique that you have to deal with. So for the cliff, do you do you leave the leg on or do you, like, take it off and throw it on your back or something? <laughs> no, no, no. I love – the cliff is, like, my favorite thing. Um, no, I just, uh, it, for the most part, I, I get to break the water with it. So like it, it sort of helps my entry, I guess, but, um, no, it's just, I get to the edge and heck bombs away, man. That's, uh, there's no, nothing there besides, uh, making sure the belt's on hopefully, which is, it always has been cause that, that leg will sink quick if it happened to come off. Um, yeah, so there's, there's no really tricky thing about that besides everybody like just same thing as everybody else you just get to the edge and jump gotcha what about augustus gloop slash snot rock at the moment with like the tube and there's like yeah. a ladder on the inside um not too bad i always gotta you know go i'm only going i'm doing a lot of a, like to say like a pull-up and then i find you know the the hole or whatever i the rung for my one leg so i'm always going one leg at a time i usually don't rely a lot on my prosthetic leg for that where i'm putting all my body weight on something because if i because I don't know exactly how stable it is under me. And if it's not in a good hole or a good ledge um, and I'm putting all my weight on it and it slips out from me, I'm going down uh, hard. So those things I get iffy on using my prosthetics. So I'll tend to just use my three good limbs to get through it. Um, the obstacles that, you know, anything balanced obviously is going to be difficult for me. Uh, the cargo nets are a pain in the ass. I mean, I, I got this thing on me that just loves to hook those those ropes, and then I go to step up or whatever, and I'm latched onto the rope, and next you know it's like yanking me back or trying to pull my leg off, and that's what happened. Like I said that one time uh, at the big A frame the year before is I got all caught up on my prosthetic, and that one, that those like little things like that is what sort of hang me up and stuff for sure. I'm trying to think. Oh, and then obviously like. Um, Everest or any kind of quarter pipe, you know, I, I don't really have, <laughs> I'm not fast. And then when I hit that smooth surface with my prosthetic leg, I don't have, I, I sort of can't get forward as most people would as they're going up the, up it. Um, so I don't get much out of it. And next thing you know, if I put a lot of weight on it, I'm down on my face quick. Um, so yeah, it's gotta I, be impossible. It, it's, it's not fun. I look at it and, I, I pretty much that's the one time on course that I really feel limited. Like I feel like a disabled athlete. Like I like because I look around and I'm like, who's gonna lend me the longest? You know, who's the tallest that can reach down the farthest and lend me a hand? 
Um, if it's nice and dry, I've gotten lucky and made it a few times, but uh, most of the time I'm looking around saying, who's going to be able to help me? Because uh, I, those aren't just those are just not fun. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I I know I've pulled up some dead fish off Everest. You know, people who just like they just latch on. They're like, all right, that's it. And you're like, no, no, I I need you to pull too. This is a two. Like, I'm gonna pull as hard as I can, but I also need you to like hook a leg or you know pull yeah. an arm or something and pull yourself up. And so, um, yeah, and then those I honestly like I'm. I have solid upper, upper body strength and stuff. So if I can just get someone to get me to my fingertips to the ledge, then you can walk away. I don't care. I'll get myself up from there. I'm not looking for someone to pull me all the way up to the top and whatever. I just need that last three feet or so to help me get my hands to a ledge. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, so we talked a little bit about Noobsanity already. Are there any other local OCRs that you've done, kind of in New York or uh... – yeah, you know, throughout the middle of the country. Um, well, it's pretty cool. Spartan has uh, done the winter Spartan now two years in a row, which I think is like the only official winter OCR um, event out there, um, which is pretty cool on a completely snow-covered ski hill. Uh, this year, I, I was recovering from injury, so I went there as a spectator carrying backpacks for everybody. But last year, I did it, and um, so that's nice. That's only that's at Greek Peak up in Cortland, New York, which is about forty-five minute drive from here. So that's a that's a cool event. Um, it's it, and I feel like we have such an advantage by living here, and we train in the snow, and we're still training outside at Noob Sanity throughout the winter, and they have their sessions, and then you have these people that travel for this event, you know, from south or whatever, and they don't really have that snow experience. So then they get here and they're like, "Ooh, it's cold," and "Whoa, this is hard to run on," and whatever. And we're like, "This is what we do every day." So um, that's fun. Uh, the new Sandy stuff, Viking, um, up towards Albany has got some stuff going on up there where a lot of people from new Sandy go to. And, um, yeah, that's about it for the local stuff. Cool. So what do you have planned for 2018? Um, I have nothing confirmed at this moment because I'm right on the end of my recovery of, uh, some neck fusion. I had a C5 through C7 neck fusion seven weeks ago. Um, so I wanted to make sure I got through that before I started committing to a ton of things. Uh, but right now I think, you know, I'm going to go to Philly, um, in April and do the Tough Mudder down there, looking at a Savage Race in PA, looking at the toughest up in Boston. Um, I got, uh, other things outside the OCR world in the books right now. I'm committed to climbing a volcano in Ecuador in September. So I want to be sort of in shape for a, a whole different sort of, Event, well, I don't know if you call it event, but, uh, you know, getting used to 19,500 feet um, elevation, which you just can't get used to, but um, whatever training I can do to get me prepped for that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, wherever, if it's an open weekend and there's a group from New Sanity heading somewhere, who knows? I might just hop in the back seat and I'll head with them. Right on. So, so when you're climbing up a volcano in Ecuador, how long are you at 19,000 feet for? Because that's high. That's like... That's real. Like when? Where does where does the death zone start? What is it like twenty? It's got to be like twenty three or something like that, right? Yeah, I'm not. I honestly am not sure. Um, I'm, I'm climbing. I'm gonna go- Google it while we uh, while we talk. Keep climbing going. is not my forte, um, but I was invited a few years ago to climb with a group of amputees um, for an organization called Romp, which is called Range of Motion Project, 
and their whole mission is to try to get prosthetics to developing countries where people just don't have access to prosthetics. And basically 80% of the world's amputees don't have access to prosthetic devices, um, which is crazy. Um, so what we what Romp has done is basically right around the anniversary of the American Disabilities Act, they say we're going to get some of the craziest, awesomest amputees out there and have them climb a mountain and show the world that you're not disabled by an amputation, but you're disabled by the lack of a prosthetic device. And if you have a prosthetic device, you can climb a mountain. Um, so I couldn't do it a couple years ago because I already had a full schedule com- committed with OCR and stuff. So this year they actually contacted me right um, a few weeks ago, and I was all interested, and I had not had an OCR schedule made out yet, so I said, for sure, I'm going to do it this year, Um, and that's, like, one of my big focuses. And we're going to go down there um, in September, and we're going to do two training um, sort of height climbs to roughly, I can't think of the height, but where we spend the night at altitude, not quite, probably right around 15,000 feet. Um, and then we come down, and then on the third um, hike climb, we'll go to sort of like a, I think like a base camp type-ish thing um, at Cotopaxi, which is the second tallest active volcano in the world. Um, we'll spend the night there, and then we'll do a little bit of a ice pick crampon training, and then at midnight, we leave the camp to go um, summit, and hopefully we summit right around sunrise, and then we'll spend the morning descending. Cool. Sounds like a great trip. We may have to get you back on after you finish that off and we can discuss how it was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah so the uh, I, I googled the death zone. It starts at, according to Google, 26,247 feet, which essentially when you start to get above, getting above that height, you have, well, you have trouble breathing, obviously, at all those heights. Yeah. But essentially your body stops doing things it needs to survive, so you can't spend prolonged periods above that height. Um, what I was so. told was, at 19,500 feet, you're basically going to be feel like you have a hangover all the time. Like, you're just going to have a headache. You're going to sort of feel uh, nauseous. Um, and that's if it hits you pretty good. Some people, it doesn't hit so bad. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's not, like, going to be life-threatening in any way, but you'll probably be uncomfortable. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. um, I know some, like, one of my friends, well, actually, he was a co-worker. He's not, not an actual friend. Um <laughs> It was someone. I, it was like someone I met in passing at work, right? Like we we, we were working at the same place for like two weeks, and then like I don't, I couldn't even tell you his name to be honest with you, <laughs> which is why, which is why I I saying coworker, not a friend. Um, he was gonna climb Everest, and was sleeping in an altitude tent, uh, you know, for obviously for a couple of, I'm assuming months leading up to it, but yeah, he was saying it was uh, fairly uncomfortable to sleep once you start cranking up the altitude in that thing. So. Yeah. All right on. All right. Uh, I think that about sums it up. That was super interesting. And that was great. I hope people are enjoying listening to this as much as I am re- enjoying recording it because I learned a lot today. Uh, before we let you go, any shout-outs you want to give to friends, family, sponsors, companies, et cetera? Um, well, uh, Merrill is actually um, – working with me on this whole climb with ROM thing because they're all about getting outdoors and kicking ass. And uh, Sue Harvey Brown with Merrill, I shared my goals with this, and she's all about making Merrill a part of it, so I'm excited about that. Um, A Step Ahead Prosthetics is huge. I mentioned them a few times down in Hicksville, New York. Um, they're, They're making prosthetic devices for 
every person at every level and uh, helped me achieve my goals um, right from playing lacrosse all the way up to getting 50 miles at Worlds. And besides that, you know, I got my family. Who my, I got my wife and my kids who let me play a lot, and I couldn't do it without that because, um, you know, obviously family is extremely important, and if they weren't supportive, then uh, I would have to not play so much. <laughs> so I'm so happy for them and, and letting me do what I do and being a part of it and supporting me through it all. So that's about it. Well, obviously, you know, I love Merrill too. I was on Team Merrill for World's Toughest Mudder, and Sue Harvey Brown is awesome. Yep. They were They were so good to us. In the event, you know, the, in the lead up to World's Toughest Mudder and afterwards, and I just love their products. I'm a big fan of the Trail Glove shoe. It's like a minimalist yep. shoe, which I like because it, you know, when it gets wet and, and muddy and stuff, it doesn't add a lot of weight. It's just like, just like wearing another sock basically. Um, but it doesn't have a lot of cushioning, so not not the shoe for everyone. The All Out Crush I think is also a really good shoe. Um, for some reason, that one, based off the way my foot shape, that one gives me blisters if I run over like 10 miles. Um, so I went with the trail glove for World's Toughest Mudder. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm more people... of a stability guy. I need that cushion. Um, I'm taking a lot on that foot, so I want that yeah, foot to be I can't... feeling good. But yeah, yeah so I I, I'm imagine. usually having a more of a, a heavier, bulkier shoe on my left foot. But like I said, I just forget about that foot anyways. So because I know it's going to work for me. I, I don't. I that's part of my body. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And if you. For, the, for those listeners, if you haven't gone over and checked out the Strength and Speed store, please do. Pre-orders now open for my new book, uh, Mother Run Guide's Ultra OCR Bible. So you can go check that out. It's got interviews. But besides all like the normal training stuff that I put out, you know, uh, three different training plans and obstacle techniques and packing list suggestions and all this, basically a complete comprehensive manual for what you need for ultra endurance obstacle course racing. It's also got interviews in the back with a lot of the best athletes in Ultra OCR. So, obviously, the king, uh, Ryan Atkins, we have an interview with him in the back there. Allison Ty, Morgan McKay, Amy Padgett, um, who else we got back there? Logan Nagel from New Sanity and from uh, number 19 from The Selection, who's also we've also had on this podcast. Uh, my friend Jordan Smith, who ran across the state of Michigan. Uh, why am I drawing a blank on the rest of the name? Wesley Kerr, obviously my teammate from Team Merrill and uh, Trevor Sykos. So a lot of great people in the back there. I know I'm missing like two or three people, and I feel bad. But check it out. All the list of names are on the website. And then on top of that, if you haven't heard, I just released my big event for the year. So I'm going to be multi-lapping Conquer the Gauntlet in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on August 24th through the 26th. So that's 48 hours of multi-lapping, climbing over obstacles, and 100% of the registration costs go to the charity Folds of Honor, which provides scholarship money for children whose parents were killed or wounded in action. So if you're going to be in Tulsa in August or you want to make a trip to a Conquer the Gauntlet, I highly recommend the Tulsa event because not only is my charity event going on, but there's also the regular race on Saturday, and then there's a team event on Sunday. And their team events are also super cool, unlike anything you've seen anywhere else in OCR. If you want to hear more about that, you can go back and listen to the podcast with Randy Lackey where we describe exactly what the team event was. That about runs up, wraps it up for me. Dan, again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great episode. Loved having you here. Thanks. Thanks and, for having uh, me. I will see you at one of the toughest this year's. You definitely. I should hopefully be at East for sure. All right. Thanks again. Yep. Have a great night.